Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 16. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. So the Nana of our oldest three children has worked in Vanderbilt's NICU for over 30 years. Just a dear and faithful servant-hearted lady who has kept that post for the long haul, which means she has been a caregiver in countless little dramas that were unfolding in the very first minutes of new life. And I've always admired her for not just that good and hard work, but the longevity of that. But we were especially thankful for her post during Felicity's birth. Because when Felicity was born, her little lungs were stuck together like little balloons that couldn't expand. And and so she spent the first five days of her life, the Thanksgiving week, in the NICU, where it was pumping air into her lungs to keep them expanded. And yes, one of her nurses was our Nana. And what a comfort it was to have her. And, and having a newborn in the NICU is such a strange blend of emotions because you're, you're so thankful, so overjoyed for the new life. And in very real time, you feel keenly the pain of watching them struggle and being totally helpless to, to do anything about it. And it is a poignant reminder, reminder, as we said several weeks back, two things are obvious about the world. One It is astonishingly beautiful, and two, it is painfully broken. This is undeniable, and it demands an explanation. In the book of Genesis, the beginning of beginnings is the explanation. It's astonishingly beautiful because it was created by the Creator God for the very purpose of showcasing His infinite glory in creation. And, as we've now discovered, it's painfully broken because of human rebellion and sin, because his image bearers rejected him. And today we're going to see the specific judgments leveled upon the man and the woman and the earth because of Adam's sin. And perhaps not surprisingly, 
A word that is repeated three times in just the first two verses of this section is the word pain. The result of sin in a word is varied in various pains that now befall humanity and really all all living things. So we're going to see these basic human struggles, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, all emerging in the story today, really for the first time explicitly. The, The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the reality of pain in this world, far from it. The Bible actually explains it, why it exists. Pain is very real. And pain came first because our rejection of God's wisdom. Now, of course, to be crystal clear, all the pain that we presently experience, you can't draw a straight line because of sin, your personal sin. Like the man who was blind, the disciples said, well, then who sinned? And Jesus said, nobody sinned to make him blind. It was so that God could be glorified. But pain always points to the reality of the brokenness in the world that was caused by human sin. As Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, one of his books, pain is God's megaphone, and it rouses a deaf world. However, the Bible does not merely give us the reason for pain. It also provides the only final cure for it as well. And thanks be to God, we'll see that overshadowed in this text everywhere. So we're going to make our way through the text, and here's how I want us to consider it today as we think through this text. Two two specific overarching parts. First, we'll find pronouncements of judgments, namely on the woman and the man, and then we'll transition to what I'm going to argue are provisions of grace. So pronouncements of judgments and then provisions of grace. So first comes the judgments. Last week we saw the Lord pronounce a curse upon the serpent, both as animal, but of course the serpent behind the serpent, namely the ancient serpent, Satan himself. And now, so we're picking up mid-conversation, the three offending parties are there, the Lord turns his gaze to the woman who was deceived by the serpent and was the first to eat. And in verse 16 again, it says, To the woman, the Lord said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So the first thing to notice, which we'll see in the judgments for man and woman, is that the the penalties or the judgments for their rebellion are not arbitrary. They are not arbitrary, but rather they are connected directly to the mission that they were given, the cultural mandate that they were given. God created them male and female and called them to be fruitful and to multiply and to take dominion over the earth together. And now each one of those aspects will be painful for them. That's that's the connection. Now the process of childbearing and childrearing for the woman will be painful. And he says, in manifold, in multiplied ways. Obviously, there's the physical aspects of pain in childbirth, the actual process of bringing another human into the world, which racks and stretches the woman's physical frame, which, of course, also showcases the unbelievable 
metal and inner strength of the feminine constitution. And women, just so you know, we, we as men stand amazed at this. Uh, if, if we were given this curse, I, I'm convinced it was given to the woman because there would have not been another human ever born. Because we would have been so terrified. The Lord didn't give us that kind of grit. He gave us brute strength. He gave women inner strength that we marvel at. Every one of us should just text our moms today and say, just, just thank you. Thank you for all of that that brought me here. Seriously, do that. There will be chain and pain in childbearing. Yet it's not just the physical pain. Rather, the Lord again said there will be a multiplication of pain. Various pains. There will be postpartum struggles. There will be a hurricane raining down on her hormones. There will be unending sacrificial self-giving. And there will be the pain of entrusting your child to the Lord as they journey through their own struggles and their own sin. In Eve's case, which we'll see in the very next chapter, her first son took the life of her second son. So this wasn't theoretical for Eve. She knew pain now in childbirth. But of course, the pain here also includes, to be sure, all the great challenges even surrounding childbearing, whether that is the struggles with fertility itself or or the pain of miscarriage, which of course Laura and I know well, and many of you know these things. Now we know nothing is outside the wise providence of God. We know because of Christ, the great banner over our reality is when we get to the end and we see the whole story, we will say thank you. Because all things will have been woven together. But we're not there yet. These are painful realities which need to be shared and grieved in the context of the body of Christ where we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Back to the text. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then the Lord says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. And he will rule over you. Now this is one of the more challenging verses to translate. But the thrust of the verse seems clearly to be that the tension will now exist in the God-ordained hierarchical nature of marriage. Okay? That's the main thrust. Tension will exist now in the hierarchical nature of marriage. As we've seen already in Scripture, before the fall, within marriage there is both equality and hierarchy. Men and women are, of course, equal in image-bearingness, in all the dignity and all the value that comes with that. Of course, And there is a hierarchy in marriage, even before the fall, with the man being the head and the wife called to come in glad, helpful submission to his headship, to be his chief helper in the mission the Lord has given them. Equality and hierarchy is a beautiful part of the wisdom of God in the world he created. And it's ultimately an expression of the Trinity itself, where each person of the Trinity Father, Son, Holy Spirit is equal in Godness, and the Son incarnate gladly submitted to the will of the Father in all things. And so before the fall, this would have been the most natural dance in the world 
for Adam and Eve. It would have been easy. It would have made total sense. The man leading the woman with wise vision and kind love as the Lord of the land and the woman gladly and joyfully submitting to that and honoring the man and helping him as the lady of the land. However, sin here says that is going to be all tangled up now. That is, the wife's desire will be contrary to the husband's. So she'll, she'll in her sin, buck against his headship now. She won't like it naturally, which is one of even the chief virtues of our day culturally, bucking against any God-ordained hierarchy anywhere. However, men are just as prone to sin as women. And so his sinful temptation in the dance will either be not to lead at all, like Adam did with Eve, just to take his foot off the gas and his hands off the wheel and abdicate his responsibility, or to abuse his headship by being harsh and, and controlling. So, so all of this marital tension, this, this discord in the dance, is a direct symptom of sin having taken residence up in the man and the woman. And when we understand this, when we understand overarchingly what's being expressed here in this curse, it also helps us understand the exhortations in the New Testament for husbands and wives specifically. For instance, Colossians 3, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Ephesians 5, let each husband love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the, the point is not men need respect but no love and women need love but no respect. That's not the point. He is highlighting their sinful inclinations now. So as the head of the home, the man runs on honor and respect. It's the way the Lord has designed things. But now the wife's temptation will be to withhold that intentionally from him, to frustrate him and to discourage him. And then the man's sinful inclination will be to be harsh with her. And to be unloving to her, which only pushes her farther away. And of course, this is all even more exasperated because often, even when we aren't sinning, we simply forget how completely different we're wired as men and women. And so we just miss each other in our communication. And that's the very reason God gave us verses like Ephesians 5.33, just to write it out very plainly what the man and the woman each need, and what they'll be tempted to withhold because of the curse. Husbands, love your wives, and don't be harsh. Be kind to them. And wives, respect your husbands. And this is also why Christian marriages that are in submission to God's word are such a profound and potent witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. And it's because, as we see in the text today, it's totally unnatural. Conflict is natural. When you put sinners in that close of confines for that long, there's going to be lots of explosions. But when a man and a woman has submitted each personally to Christ and their marriage to Christ and are seeking to honor each other and love each other and to lead and to submit... It is an amazing testimony to the reality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel actually at work 
in real time. That the curse really is being rolled back in real time. It's a big deal. Okay, so now after addressing the woman, the Lord turns his attention to the man. Verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. So so pause there real quick. Now this, of course, is not saying that husbands shouldn't listen to their wives. Of course, any wise and godly husband will often eagerly inquire of his wife as his helper, who has a lot of wisdom that he does not possess. Christian husbands, of course, inquire on the thoughts of their wives. But here, the Lord is making a very specific point because he gave that directive to Adam first. Eve did not hear that from God. Adam taught Eve what the Lord had said. But now when Eve was being deceived in real time, she was being deceived by the serpent. Adam didn't speak to her the word of the Lord. Rather, he listened to the word of his wife in the midst of deception. So that's that's the point there. And now Adam's tasks in the cultural mandates will be impacted because of that abdication. Continuing on in verse 17, Because of that, cursed is the ground because of you. Quick side note again. Notice that the Lord never actually curses the man and the woman directly. So he curses the serpent. He curses the soil. He never actually curses the man and the woman. That's worth thinking on. I don't have space to get into more of that there. But notice that. So Adam will live in a cursed world, but he he himself was not cursed. He was thrust into a cursed place. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So as we saw some weeks back, work is not part of the curse. Work is not a part of the curse. However, our work came under the curse when Adam sinned. Adam had been placed in a perfect, delightful garden the day that he was made with good and meaningful and necessary work. But now the ground is going to fight back against his efforts and work, though still a great pleasure to man, will come with pain and frustration. Earning money to, to get food will be a hard and wearisome task, beset with frustrations. Hard drives will crash, ants will bite, headaches will make writing a grueling task. And there will be meetings that you have to attend that seem totally ridiculous or just downright maddening. And some seasons you'll have to burn the candle at both ends just to make ends fit. It it will be hard. And then, because of sin, Adam and every human will die. And so the the Hebrew has a bit of a play on the words here. It's Adam will return to the Adama. That's the word in Hebrew for, for earth. 
And because of this, there will be a great temptation for men to believe, and women, that our work, which is itself a blessing, is actually a fleeting and futile thing. And even that existential sense is a very real pain in life, to seeing a task that you work so hard just fall apart. And in fact, there's an entire book of the Bible that deals with that very reality. It's called Ecclesiastes. The futility of work, when considered only from the perspective of under the sun, can be a maddening thing. And so the Lord says to Adam, you'll work in pain and frustration, and then you will die. And that's where the judgment section ends. And that could be discouraging if we ended there. That is admittedly a bleak place to land. But of course, that is not the end of the story. This is just the end of the beginning and the beginning of the entire saga of redemption, of course. And the Lord in his kindness doesn't even leave us here long. As I said, we have pronouncements of judgments, but we also here find provisions of grace. And in fact, the text now comes to a pivot point in verse 20. And I'm going to argue that we immediately begin to see various seeds of hope and grace planted in the now cursed world. So continue on with me in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Now, it would be easy to pass over that verse too quickly and to say, okay, Genesis 3.20, I know where Eve is named. That's helpful for Bible trivia. And now we'll move on from there. But I want to say that this is a very important and profound moment in the story of humanity. I believe it's a moment where Adam, after feeling the weight and the horror of everything that he just caused, the sin, the hiding, the judgments, not just on him, but on his wife, who was deceived. He sees all that. And I believe verse 20 is actually a moment of repentance and faith from his sin and abdication. So where do I see that? Well, first... He names his wife. And naming is an act of responsible leadership that he was tasked with doing before sin. So he turned from blaming his wife, and now he names his wife. I believe that's faith. But he doesn't just give her a name. Adam speaks an identity over her with the name. He's casting a vision for his people, for his wife. He called her Eve. Why? Why did he call her Eve? Well, she had just been told that childbearing would be incredibly painful. And, oh, by the way, all the kids are going to die now, ultimately. But he called her Eve because you will be the mother of all living, ultimately. You are Eve. That's your name. And friends, we have to remember that that this encounter here actually happened in time and space between two specific individual human people that made eye contact, that had inflections of actual voice in real time. This actually happened. Adam, the man, actually said that to his wife. Your name is Eve. You are the mother of all living. 
I have to imagine that that was a profound moment, hence why the Holy Spirit adds it. Death for the people of God will not be the ultimate trajectory. This story would be one that leads to life, and life would come through Eve. And here Adam, like a good leader, is casting a redemptive vision. I brought sin into the world, and through you, life, and we know even, life eternal, will come. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And so we see the kindness and the grace of God. He does not leave them naked and ashamed. Even that word for make, it literally, to to, to, to make, to, to fabricate something. The Lord personally makes clothes for them, and then covers their shame. But these were not clothes made from fig leaves. These were made of skin, which means this is the first likely recorded death. It is the first recorded death in all of Scripture. Something now had to give up its life so that the man and the woman would be clothed and covered. 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then it stops. So the tree of life is a mysterious tree, to be sure. And and so apparently, if eaten, it would have cemented them in the reality that they were in here, namely into sinful judgment. They would have lived forever in that state. And again, it's, it's interesting that the sentence stops Abruptly, without the Lord even completing his thought, apparently. So you'll see in the ESV that there's a dash at the end. That's the way the ESV is trying to communicate to that. It's almost as if that thought was so painful that rather than even completing it, the Lord just acts immediately, stops himself mid-thought and acts to make sure that that doesn't happen. Which is precisely what we see continuing on. 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. So a much firmer word than sent out. He sent him out. He drove him out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so, yes, this is a sorrowful scene. A sorrowful scene of Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden of God, being driven out of the original holy of holies, which is what the garden is, to work the land that will now bring forth thorns. And yet, notice the gracious impulse of the Lord even here. Because even here in the expulsion, it's it's partly for their protection. All along the way, even after Adam rebelled and broke the terms of the covenant of life and rightly deserved a swift and immediate death, God's impulse was always grace from pursuing them in their hiding at the beginning to keeping them from being damned forever by guarding the tree of life with a heavenly sentinel to clothing them to cover their shame and their nakedness. Friends, our God is slow to anger. But he abounds in steadfast love. Our God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but desires that they would come to repentance. 
but yet they were still cast out of his immediate presence. And they were set off now into an uninhabited world that is under a curse, because the skins of animals could not truly atone for the sin of Adam. And there was nothing that Adam could do to undo what he had done. God would have to provide something far more powerful if they were to be truly covered. If they were to ever be at home in the presence of the Holy One, they would have to be clothed in robes far richer than the robes of the skins of animals. They would have to be clothed in the holiness of God himself again. And so as we envision Adam and Eve walking away with their backs to the garden, where a cherubim stood to guard the way to the tree of life, as we consider the tragedy of this scene, it should fill us with fresh awe and fresh wonder at what is happening right now in this moment at the Lord's Day service. Because here we together have come to meet with our God. And our service begins with us hearing our Lord, not casting us away, but bidding us and calling us to come near to himself. And in just a moment, our Lord will invite us, even us, to table fellowship with him in the Lord's Supper. And the reason is this. This first clothing after the judgment, this first sacrifice was a foreshadowing of a far greater sacrifice and a far greater covering that God would provide for our shame and for our nakedness and for our sin. And it would be through the death, not of an animal, but of the Lamb of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the second Adam, Today we learn that Adam's sin has brought sweat to our brows and thorns to the ground. But the second Adam in the garden, not of Eden, but of Gethsemane, as Luke records, great sweats of blood dropped to the ground right before a crown of thorns was sunk into his brow. And the first Adam was rightly condemned and driven away from the tree. And the second Adam was falsely condemned and then nailed to the tree. And this is why. Because Jesus Christ was, as the new Adam, taking on the curse that he might break the curse for us. That's not ironic only that we see those elements. He was succeeding where Adam failed, that he might undo what Adam had done. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And on the cross, Christ became the curse for us so that he might break the curse of Adam. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And scripture tells us that when we look to Christ by faith, we are not just freed from the curse of sin, but we are clothed. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in the holiness of Christ, and we are welcomed back into the presence of God. We are invited to eat now from the tree of life, which is Jesus Christ himself, and in which we will do in just a moment in communion. And I'll conclude by reading Revelation 21, 3 through 4. 
which is the answer to the pain and the expulsion that we just saw in Eden for those who are in Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have now passed away. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this glorious gospel that you have proclaimed over us in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to us when we were still backed to you in rebellion and pursuing us and succeeding where our first father failed. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes to see the Lord Jesus, not just as a good teacher, but as a glorious Savior. We thank you, Lord, that this is true. We pray that Goodlitzville, through our witness, would believe it more and more, and many would even come to salvation in these coming days for your glory. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.